This is day one of the 2017 Idlewild Bible School. Our third period teacher is Brother Bill Link. His general topic is Portraits of the Master. Today's topic is The Master's Hands. Brother Bill. Good morning, brothers and sisters. These classes are about knowing Jesus. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him, knowing him personally. It's something that I've given some thought to in recent years. Um, I think maybe in avoiding evangelical excesses, which I don't have to name, that I might have worshiped around Jesus. Jesus might have been an intellectual concept rather than a person. And I've been thinking about it a lot. And I want to know Jesus. I want to recognize him. He said, this is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And, and you remember when he, he talks about his sheep hear his voice, and they know his voice, and they won't follow someone else's voice because they don't recognize him. We've got to recognize Jesus' voice and follow him. We want to know him that well. I was thinking about that and knowing Jesus, and I, I got to thinking about my dad, who, dad, dad died eight years ago, and I knew my dad so well, I, particularly his hands. He had the big, thick hands of a craftsman, and I can still see them. I wonder if that's that way for you, with, with some of you maybe lost your father or, or mother, if you can still see their hands. A guy, a guy at work told me that he could still feel the weight of his father's hand on his shoulder. He, Dad, I remember as a kid sitting in his workshop, and he, he had a way of cutting wood that he'd push the thing towards the blade and then at the last minute he'd lift his thumbs up and his, he had shaky hands. And it used to always scare the, the life out of me. <laughs> but I can remember my dad's hands so well. He, dad was a simple man and, and, and uncomplicated. I don't know if many of you would have known him. He, he was generally a man of few words, um, but he had a great way of, uh, of torturing sayings. Uh, <laughs> One time after a business meeting, he stepped outside to me and he says, that brother really gets under my goat. <laughs> or he'd say, that's all water over the bridge. And, and one time he, he had a pet, pet goldfish that he said was on its last legs. <laughs> and, and then my, my favorite, I think, was he said, never look, never look a gift horse in the eye. <laughs> I don't know what the danger of that is, but apparently you shouldn't do that. Like I said, I, I, my dad always had a, a bit of a tremor in his hands, too, and I can, I can still see that. When I'm nervous speaking, he would be nervous. The tremor got worse. He said it started when he was a conscientious objector in World War II and was given alternative service of working in a violent ward of a mental institution. Anyway, I had a dream about my dad not too awful long ago. I was out front of the house in my dream, splitting wood, 
And here comes my dad walking up the driveway. And I said, you're back. And he just looked at me with that big, gentle smile of his. And he said, I'm back. And I woke up. <laughs> I can almost imagine that might be what it, that could even be what happens. Because it says that the Lord will send his angels, his messengers. And Paul tells us in Timothy that the dead in Christ shall rise first. So if my dad did come up, walk up the driveway, I would know the resurrection would happen. And I would recognize my dad. And I'd recognize those great big gentle hands of his. I want to know the Lord Jesus that well. I, I think we all do. And it's not just knowing about him, but having a sense of him as a real person. And not only a real person who lived or will live, but as a man who is alive and aware and active in our lives now. So my goal this week is to encourage us to think about what it means to know Jesus and to recognize his voice and to know what's not his voice. I want to encourage meditation on the person of the Lord Jesus and we'll be guided by some portraits of the Master that are given in the Gospels. So just a good starting point, even though it's familiar to us. Philippians chapter 3. Paul wrote Philippians from a Roman jail. All of the events of the book of Acts are behind him, and it's thought that 2 Corinthians is behind him, so that, that list of things we mentioned in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians where all he had been through as an apostle. And you come to Philippians chapter 3, and Paul talks about how earnestly he wants to know Jesus. And you could think, you could think surely at this point in his life, Paul could claim to know Jesus. He'd seen Jesus in that marvelous vision, right? But he said it was his desire, the thing he was pressing toward, to know Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, he's speaking about having confidence in the flesh, and it's very intriguing to read what the things he counts as confidence in the flesh are. It's not the big bank account, you know, it's not a big house and all possessions and things like that. that if we were saying having confidence in the flesh, that might be what we'd think about. But instead, the things that he calls confidence in the flesh is sort of the, uh, the religious trappings that people would respect you for, the outward show of religion. He says, verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man think that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the ecclesia. He, could, he had all the bona fides that people could look at Paul and say, that is a very religious man. He's scrupulously religious. He's a righteous man. And Paul says, this is having confidence in the flesh. 
Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. You know, we think about Romans chapter 6 that we always have read at our baptisms, and we talk about a burial with Christ and a raising to a new life that as Christ in his resurrection was now free from sin, the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I want to be made conformable to his death. I want to know him. So that's what we want to do. Now, I started off with some recollections of my dad that were prompted by the, the clarity of the mental image I have of my dad, uh, uh, my dad's hands. It's interesting, we spent the other night at uh, Joyce and Richard's house and they had pictures of old brother Padgy making nachi. And they were all, it was a collage of pictures with his hands. And I, I bet you a lot of you can remember those hands. Uh, we don't know what Jesus' hands looked like, but our attention's drawn to them repeatedly in the Gospels. And interestingly, most especially in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to point out some passages today where Matthew, for some reason, particularly draws our attention to Jesus' hands. So let's start off in Matthew chapter 8. By the way, does it do many of you have the eastward available to you for Bible study? Marvelous, marvelous uh, resource. It's free electronic Bible that you can put on your computer or your iPad if you have it. Um, I really recommend it. One of the nice things it has is it has a harmony of the Gospels that you can, you can open up and look at the harmony of the Gospels. And when you lay them out side by side, it is remarkable to see the differences as you go through a series of events in the different Gospels, how they're reported just slightly differently. And like I said, in preparing these classes, it really caught my eye that it's Matthew who says things about Jesus' hands. And they're kind of incidental things that maybe you wouldn't need for the story to be complete. So Matthew 8, verses 1 to 3. Jesus is coming down from the, from the Sermon on the Mount, and great multitudes follow him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. We're going to talk more about this episode later on in the week. But just to get the sense, the crowd of people. So many times, Jesus, we see him in a crowd of people. And there's a leper who doesn't belong there. He's come in, you know, he's supposed to be saying unclean, unclean, covering his lip and staying away. But he has come to Jesus and he he says, if you want, you can make me clean. Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will. I do want to. 
be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And you can't help but think to yourself, I wonder how long it had been since anybody of sound body had touched this man with this horrible, disfiguring disease. And Jesus touched him. And we, we, you, know, you might ask yourself, so why is that detail included? Right, come over, chapter 8, come down to verse 14. Peter's mother-in-law's sick. And it's interesting, you know, you look at the harmony of the Gospels, the different accounts. Luke, you know, Luke the physician, he says she had a great fever. The other Gospels say she had a fever. Luke says she had a great fever. And uh, so I guess in my mind's eye, I see Jesus approaching her. And Luke says that he stood over her. Here's, here's what we have in Matthew, verse 8, um, verse 14 of chapter 8. When Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. And once again, you say, well, why did he touch her hand? And why is the detail included? Remarkably, in between these two healings where Jesus reaches out and touches the person, is the centurion with, this, with the servant who's sick of the palsy. In, in verse 5, uh, when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And the centurion says, ah, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Yeah, I'm a man under authority. I, I, guess I issue commands and they're taken care of. Implication being that he knew that Jesus' word was enough. And Jesus says, I haven't seen such an incredible faith. In verse 13, he says to the centurion, go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And you imagine the centurion goes home, and there's his servant. He's been He's been paralyzed, and now he's up and about and looks fine. He's, he's not grievously tormented. And, he, and you can imagine him saying, well, so when did it happen? And they'd say, well, it was about, it was about two hours ago. And, and he would know it was right when Jesus had spoken the word that the man was healed. Now, isn't it interesting that that is sandwiched right in between these two cases where Jesus touches the person who he's healing. It's almost as though to say it, it was not necessary for Jesus to touch that leper. It wasn't necessary for him to touch Peter's mother's, <laughs> Peter's wife's mother, sorry. Be careful with these relations, they get me in trouble. Peter's mother-in-law, it wasn't, it wasn't necessary for him, to, for him to touch her. But in both cases, the hand of Jesus is involved. And you ask why? And it's not complicated. On one measure, I think it's the touch of the divine. It's coming in contact with the divine. But there's also something about Jesus' compassion. Isn't it interesting that so many 
expressions of compassion have to do with being touched. So we think of in Hebrews chapter 4, when it talks about our compassionate high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We don't have a high priest, the, the writer saying, we don't have a high priest who's so out there, separate from us, so perfect and unimproachable. We have one who's touched with the feeling of our infirmity. Come over, come over with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Seeing then, Hebrews 4 verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The reality of our Lord Jesus is what's being spoken of here. And I, you know, I know it's, it's wonderful that we can have passages like this that we can use to explain to people that the doctrine of the Trinity is not a biblical idea. You know, we, we can say, look, Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted. We know God can't be tempted, so we know, therefore, that Jesus isn't God. And we might even see this, that might be the way we use this passage more than anything else. But I'm not sure that that was what it was written for. It was written to tell us that when we feel tempted, that we can go with confidence to the throne of grace. When we've sinned, we shouldn't pray blanket sin, the blanket prayers of forgive me of all my sins. In fact, verse 13 says that, that everything's naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to deal. I mean, Jesus knows. And when we... We feel defiled, we feel ashamed, and yet we can come with confidence because he's a merciful and compassionate high priest. And I think that's what's in evidence in these healings where he actually reaches out and touches the leper, touches Peter's mother-in-law. Well, let's come back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Here we have in verses 18 to 25, two episodes of folks coming in physical contact with Jesus. We start off with Jairus in verses 18 and 19. Matthew 9, verse 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshiped him, saying, my daughter is even now dead. But come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Now, by the way, Jesus didn't say, wait a minute, haven't you heard about that centurion? I don't need to come to your house. Where's your faith? He didn't say that, right? Because he was a merciful and compassionate high priest, and he went he could have spared himself and the disciples a long walk. He could have spared them 
the mockery of the hired uh, lamenters when they got to the house and they laughed Jesus to scorn when he said she's just asleep. He could have avoided all that just by a healing from afar. But instead, verse 19, Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Along the way, a woman comes who's had a terrible disease and for 12 years has had an issue of blood. Just like the leper, she's crowded her way into a place that she probably isn't supposed to be because she's ritually unclean. This poor woman had been sick for all those years, 12 years, and, and she would have been ritually unclean. She was physically weakened by it. She'd tried every remedy that people could offer. Um, Edersheim's Life and Times, if you don't have that one, that's one, a great book on the life of Jesus. He's not a Christian, but, and he's, you know, he's off on some things, but a great resource about the times and the, 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 the work of the Lord Jesus. He says that one leaf of the Talmud contains not less than 11 different remedies for this ailment, of which at most only six can possibly be regarded as having any medical value, while the rest are merely the outcome of superstition to which resort is had in the absence of knowledge. So she'd been to all these different physicians and it says she had suffered many things of many physicians. And the remedies they'd offered had been expensive, false hopes. She'd spent all that she had and was nothing better, but rather got worse. And so, having heard of Jesus' healing power, she desired the merest contact, even if it was just his clothes, even just the border of his garment. Come over with me to Mark, for the Mark account's a little bit more detailed than Matthew. Mark 5, verse 28. She said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? What were we to make of this, that Jesus perceived that power had proceeded from him, and yet apparently didn't know who it was who had touched him? It's intriguing that in the previous verse it says, she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. It says there, there was some sensation in the woman's body and there was a corresponding physical sensation, some sense of energy drained, some feeling of depletion in the Lord. And he had to ask the question twice, who touched me? And it says that she came fearing and trembling, verse 33, knowing what was done in her and she came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Such kindness that the Lord, what a kind man. And that kindness is extended to us as well. 
I was struck with something Brother Phil said in first class this morning about when we love Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, but when we love Jesus, we love him so much that to disappoint him, to not avail ourselves of opportunities that he's presented us with. Well, it's a good motivation, love is. We want to be motivated by the love of Christ. The love of Christ constrains us. Think of the compassion of our Lord. Now, meanwhile, while all this is going on, you have Jairus there. And Jairus is saying to himself, come on, my daughter, she's at death's door. Let's go. Maybe this woman wasn't even somebody who'd been in the synagogue and, you know, she was unclean. The ruler of the synagogue was probably getting impatient. And then just as Jesus finished addressing the woman, word comes that the little girl's died. Verse 35, while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any longer? But Luke's account says that when Jesus heard this, he said, fear not, believe only, and she'll be made whole. And so the whole procession makes its way to Jairus' house. And there they're confronted by the tumult of the professional mourners. Verse 38, he comes to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel's not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entereth in where the damsel was laying and he took the damsel by the hand. I wonder if at this point that lifeless hand had gotten cold. He took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked. She, for she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it. And this is the part I love. He commanded them that something should be given her to eat. Now, what's that in there for? What's that in there for? What's that detail in there for? I mean, I can imagine any of us who know what mothers are like, she would have been just so eager to do something for this little girl. He commanded her to give something to eat. My, my mom, you know, when, when Carol's away, my mom just loves to feed me, and I'm, I'm a bad advertisement about that because uh, that, that, I, I like to eat. But it, it gives moms pleasure to do this. It's as though Jesus was saying, here's something you can do. It was an, a further act of compassion. What a compassionate and gracious Lord we have. Well, you know, we could go on. There's example. Let me give you a couple. Just mention them. Matthew 9, verses 27 to 30. Uh, right at the end of the chapter here. Right after the raising of Jairus' daughter, another example of the healing touch. And it's two blind men. And this episode is recorded only in Matthew. Um, and it's the healing touch. Matthew 9, 
Turning back there, Matthew 9, verse 29, he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, be it unto you. Um, Matthew chapter 20, a final example of the healing touch. Another two blind men, one of them blind Bartimaeus. The episode's recorded in Mark and Luke, but only Matthew records the touch of the master's hand. And it's not just in healings that Matthew seems to be bringing our attention to the hands of the Lord. You remember the time when Jesus was in a crowded room and his family was beginning to think that he was beside himself. And so they, they, they came to, to take him away. You know, maybe it's time for him to have a little bit of away from all this stuff. And they say to him, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Matthew, it's recorded in the other gospels, but Matthew's the only one who has the detail. That it, with a wave of his hand, he says, behold, my mother and my brethren. It's like as if we're being drawn, our attention's drawn to the hand of the Lord. Another, another one, uh, when Peter, and we're, I guess we're going to have this in our, maybe it's Wednesday's class of Phil, Brother Phil's, when Peter steps out of the boat, right? I've always, don't want to steal from what Brother Phil says, but I've always thought it was pretty amazing that Peter, I would have said, yeah, it is a ghost. I'm staying in the boat. But Peter says, if it be thou, bid me to come. And Jesus says, come. And he comes and he steps out onto the water. And he fears, and that's described in all the, the Gospels, but only Matthew says that when he called to the Lord, that he reached out his hand and pulled him in. The touch of the master's hand. Matthew is the only one who mentions the hands dipping in the dish at the Last Supper. And it's only Matthew that mentions the cruelty of the Roman soldiers who thrust a reed into Jesus' hand. All these are interesting, but there's, there's one particular special occasion that I want to bring your attention to in Matthew 19. It's Matthew 19, starting at verse 13. It's an occasion when little children Matthew and Mark say, Luke actually says infants, are brought to Jesus with the hope that he will touch them and pray for them. Matthew 19, starting at verse 13. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Let's have a look at the same episode in Mark chapter 10. Verse 13. And notice the details. Notice the extra details that we have here. They brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. 
Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. Now do you notice the, the, there is the extended detail about receiving the kingdom like, like little children. In fact, it's interesting in the context, he's been dealing with the Pharisees and they're, they're arguing about, they're splitting hairs about under what circumstances it is allowable to divorce one's wife. That's the Pharisees. That's in two of the Gospels. Another one of the Gospels, the immediate contact with the Pharisees is Jesus talking about the, the Pharisee who's been praying with himself and saying, oh, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. You know, and, and, and the contrast between these children and, and their parents wanting to bring the children to Jesus. And you can understand maybe why the disciples were uneasy about this. I mean, first of all, there wasn't anything wrong with the kids. They, they weren't sick. They didn't need to be healed. Um, not only that, Jesus was always being crowded, and the disciples probably felt crowded too. They probably were getting burnt out with, with, with service. Now, we do have to encourage ourselves not to grow weary with well-doing. It must have been exhausting for the disciples sometimes. That's why they were asleep in the garden, I think. They were just, it was just they were overcome with it all. And so please don't be bringing your children. Yeah, I can, might have been doing that, saying that myself. Interestingly, this is one of the few occasions where anything is said about Jesus' actual feelings at the moment. It says he was much displeased. They were really missing the point. This was important. Bring those children. Can you imagine a little kid? Jesus picking them up, stroking their face, asking for God's blessings. The Pharisees Jesus had just been dealt with weren't in the business of giving kind touches, whether to the needy or to children. He was too busy being sanctimonious, praying with himself. But Matthew says he laid his hands on them, and Mark says he took them up in his arms. You do wonder what prompted the parents to thus bring their children to Jesus. I guess that having seen things like that woman who was healed from her issue of blood, they saw contact with Jesus as contact with the divine. And it makes you wonder whatever happened to those kids, doesn't it? You wonder if 60, 70, 80 years later, they'd be saying to their grandchildren, did I ever tell you about the time? And they'd say, yeah, <laughs> you told us about that time. And I sat on the Lord Jesus' lap and he, he blessed me. I wonder if these children grew up to become disciples. What a contrast between those children and the simple faith of their parents and the self-righteous Pharisees. And so Jesus' indignation with his disciples of such is the kingdom of God. Such a lesson it was for the disciples and can imagine the parents' pleasure.
I imagine it left an indelible oppression of the kindness and gentleness of our Lord Jesus on these people. They had a mental picture of the Lord, and that mental picture was life-altering. And so it is for us, and so it should be for us, with knowing Jesus. We call him Lord and teacher, and we acknowledge his presence. We know that he ever lives to make intercession for us. I, I got to thinking about it one time, and, and it, you know, it's good to ask yourself this kind of question. Well, what difference did it make that Jesus was resurrected? I mean, why couldn't it have been simply that, you know, Abraham's going to be raised in the last day? Why couldn't Jesus have just stayed in the grave and been raised? What difference does this make? And then the first answer I come up with, probably the first answer a lot of you come up with, is, well, the grave couldn't hold him. So the fact of Jesus' resurrection was a seal of God's approval on what Jesus had done. And it was a wonderful teaching and preaching tool to say Jesus is risen. But then I say to myself, well, wait a minute. What about if there had been some other way that God could have demonstrated his approval of Jesus and some single miracle that could have absolutely shown that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah? Wouldn't, why wouldn't that have been enough? And then the answer has to come to us, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the gate of the sheepfold. He's the way we come in. Anybody else climb up and go in another way? You're a thief and robber. We don't want to worship around Christ. We don't want Christ to be a hypothetical construct in our mind, a person who lived and about whom we can recite facts and figures. We want him to be as real to us, I want him to be as real to me as my dad and that dream I had. Because if that happened and my dad comes walking up the driveway, I'm going to drop that ax because I know then. And I want to know the Lord Jesus that well also, touched with the feeling of our infirmities, tempted in all points like us, though he never succumbed. And in that confidence, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, we've got just a few more minutes, and I'm wondering, I, a complete break with protocol here, but I'm wondering if we could sing a hymn to conclude, because there's one hymn that is just so very appropriate for Matthew's consideration. We, we, it's an easy one, and I can play it if you... But I'm sure you play it a lot better. It's hymn 218. 218. And it's almost, you know, this is almost a hymn that's kind of a Sunday school hymn. Um, very simple, the words. Loving shepherd of thy sheep, keep thy lambs in safety, keep. Nothing can thy power withstand, none can pluck them from thine hand. Loving Savior, thou didst give thine own life that they may live. And the hands outstretched to bless, bear the cruel nails impress. Hymn 218. <laughs>